let's take our Bibles and turn first to a very non-Christmas passage, Leviticus chapter 26. I want to start a um, short new series this morning for the month of December, and it's called Emmanuel, God with us. And the purpose of this study, excuse me, the purpose of this series is to focus our hearts and minds on two things. Now, the first thing we're going to focus our hearts and mind on are the amazing reality that God intervened in human history. Now, just stop and let that sit in your heart for a second in your mind. The amazing reality that God intervened in human history to rescue us from sin and to offer us complete forgiveness and redemption from that sin. So that's the first focus, that's kind of the overarching focus of these studies, is the amazing reality of the incarnation, that God intervened in human history to come and deliver us from our sin. The second thing we're going to focus on, and this is more a practical part of these studies, is why God did this. Why God did this. What compelled him to come here? What reasons does the God of the universe, the King of glory, the author and finisher of all things, what, what prompted him, what caused him to come down to this little planet, which is just a speck in the universe, and to go to the cross and to die for your sins and my sins? What caused that? Why would God do that? Now, this is a fact we hear all the time, especially this time of year, we study it, it's kind of special to us, even though it doesn't quite feel like Christmas yet, but I'll get there at some point. But, but it's so familiar, and we've heard it so many times, that we might, uh, you know, maybe take it for granted a little bit. I even felt that a little bit as I was thinking and praying for the past, really past month, uh, about, Lord, what do you want me to preach at Christmas, and do you want me to do a series? And this is the, I counted, this is the 29th year I've taught or preached at Christmas, so you come to the text, and there are only so many texts about Christmas, that you start to, to kind of wonder how many different ways you can present the material and how you can keep it fresh and, and how to keep people engaged. But that's the beauty of Scripture. Because in year 29, and there are some that have preached way more than me, but in year 29, just when you think you've covered the text from every possible angle, the Lord takes you to Leviticus and shows you a different one. God's Word is so wonderful, and the beauty of Scripture is that every time you come to it, every time you ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, teach me something, show me something out of your text, God does that. And what we see is that, is that the incarnation, Christ coming to earth, was not just an isolated truth. This is one that was planned for, prepared for, foreshadowed all throughout the Bible. And when we see that, and we will over the next couple weeks, I think it just gives us a greater appreciation and a greater, uh, a greater uh, love for the awesomeness of God. Now, in Matthew 1, which we know, and we'll study later on uh, in, the, in the series, but in Matthew 1, the angel appears to Joseph. And he tells him something that Isaiah had prophesied uh, a thousand years before in Isaiah 7. And he says to him, Mary, who was his fiance, they were pure, they hadn't been together, she was a virgin, and he says, Mary, your fiance is going to bear a son, and his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, God had already told Isaiah that was going to happen, 
It had been written down. The people knew the prophecy. So now the angel comes and he quotes that and he confirms that this is going to be Messiah. This is going to be the one who is going to save people from their sin. And now that prophecy was being fulfilled. Christ was coming to earth. And he was going to come in a different way than he had come before. But this time, he was going to take the form of a man. This time, God was going to inhabit flesh. And the express purpose of doing that was to fulfill the law that man had broken, to make himself the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, and then to offer eternal salvation to anyone who put their full trust in him. Now, we're going to talk about the power of that method in a couple weeks, and we're going to talk about the amazing truths that God's teaching us through that. But this morning, I want to concentrate just on why he even came in the first place. So if you're at Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all right, third book of the Bible, chapter 26, look at verse 11, please. Moreover, I will make my dwelling, this is the Lord speaking, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk direct. Now, it's important to recognize that this passage, Leviticus 26, 11 to 13, was said to Israel. Israel was the nation that had been established through Abraham. God multiplied his descendants. He said, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a specific land that you are going to dwell in uh, as a covenant with you. So he references that covenant. If you look back at verse 12, uh, he references the covenant that he made with Abraham. And then he refers to what he had just done to delivering them out of Egypt in verse 13. So we look at that and we say, all right, well, that was spoken to Israel, so that must be specifically applying to Israel and not to us as the church because there are distinctions. There's the nation of Israel and there's the church. Now, the nation of Israel has, um, it, it's different in its relationship with God. There are physical boundaries to the, to the land that it occupies. There are certain laws that were established with the nation of Israel. God has specific plans and promises just for Israel, and he's going to deal with Israel differently in the last days than he deals with the church. So there's a distinction between Israel and the church. So we might conclude, in looking at Leviticus 26, that this was spoken to Israel, therefore it doesn't apply to us. And from a literal standpoint, that's true. But when we look at what the Lord's saying here to them, we see that God's purpose and God's method of salvation and of, and of being God to us is exactly the same to both sides. It was what it was to Israel is exactly the same to the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's just take it phrase by phrase. If you take notes, write these down or underline in your Bible or in some way interact with the text, okay? So for Israel, look at what he says. He says, I'm going to make my dwelling place among you. Now, that was personified when they established the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the, the tent of meeting that they set up whenever they traveled. All the tribes would settle around it, four on e three on each side, and God's presence would come and fill the tabernacle. Later, Solomon would build the temple, and God's presence would fill the temple. 
So, so his presence dwelt among them. The next phrase is, I will not reject you, which is still true. Even though Israel rebelled, even though Israel worshipped false gods and went into captivity and largely rejected Jesus and even to this day rejects Jesus, people are standing at the wailing wall today, bobbing back and forth, tucking the little pieces of paper. I've been there, tucking the little pieces of paper saying, God, send Messiah, send Messiah, send Messiah. Messiah's already come. But they've rejected Jesus. Then he says, third, look at it. I will walk with you and be your God, which he did. He, he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He took them to the promised land. He parted the water. He walked them across. And then when they faced their enemies in Jericho and Ai and all the other towns, he removed them and gave them victory over their enemies. And then he says, fourth, and you will be my people which he's proved over and over again. He's proving it right now. 22 nations all want Israel off the face of the map. When you look at the map, you can barely find Israel. Jerusalem's a tiny little town. Why does anybody care? Why is uh, there the potential of the United Nations trying to divide Jerusalem into two and give one side to the Jews and one side to the Palestinians, even though the Jews won it in the War of 68? Why does anybody care about tiny little Israel? Well, it's because of this verse. Because he says, you will be my people. God still has his hand on Israel. He still has plans. He will still fulfill that and restore them as a nation. So you say, all right, well, there are four things God said he'd do. Make my dwelling, not reject them, walk with them, be their God, and they'll be his people. Now draw the parallel to the church. Because everyone who trusts in Christ as Savior and is in the body... Here's how it reads to us. Look back at the verses. He will make his dwelling among us. Well, he did that by Jesus. Jesus came and made his dwelling among us. He lived it as a man, God in flesh. And the Bible says that he experienced everything that you and I do. Second, he didn't reject mankind. That's why Jesus came. To seek and to save that which was what? Tell me. Lost. Jesus came to bring salvation. So he didn't reject mankind. God could have said, you know what? You guys are messed up. You are sinners. You're destined for hell. You don't have any desire for me. Uh, the Bible says that he came while we were yet sinners. We weren't looking for God. We weren't crying out for God. But he came in the fullness of time. So God hasn't rejected mankind. God yet hasn't taken his hand off mankind. He's still restraining the enemy. He's still drawing people to himself. He doesn't want us to remain in bondage and death and hell. And he will never stop offering his salvation even to people who rebel against him and reject him and curse his name and worship false gods until the day they breathe their last breath or until he comes back. He will keep offering his mercy. Then it says, he walked with us and is our God. Well, we know that's true because Jesus was here. And then he says, we're his people. Everyone who trusts in Jesus as Savior is not only saved, not only forgiven, but they're adopted by God and declared to be one of his children. So the promise that he gave to Israel, Leviticus 26, is the same promise that's fulfilled through Christ. And the fact that he's been so consistent in his purpose and his method 
leads us to one of three spiritual principles this morning. So this is the first spiritual principle I want to give you from the text. And that is that God has proven his desire for relationship with us throughout all of history. I'll say it again. God has proven his desire for relationship with us throughout all of history. For the six millenniums that man has been on this earth, God has clearly demonstrated that he wants us to know him and he will go out of his way to bring us into a pure, close relationship with him. It is all by his effort. And there are thousands of examples in the Bible, but let me just give you a couple. One, he created us in his image and in his likeness. He breathed life into us. He gave us intelligence and will. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a close personal relationship. When man started to cry out to him and began to call on the Lord at the end of Genesis 4, God responded and God answered. And he's always been a God that will answer prayer. As long as man has existed, whenever man cried on the name of the Lord, God answered. He makes covenants with man. He started with Abraham, who was called the friend of God. He chose Israel as his people and dwelled with them and led them and worked out his plan for them and still will keep his promise to them. He's always been personal. David says, he's my help and my strength and my shield and my defense. He was to Joseph and Elijah and Esther and David and Solomon. He walked with the disciples. He ministered to tens of thousands of people who had every problem imaginable from leprosy to, to bleeding to, to demon possession, even to death. He ministered to all of them. He openly pursued people like Zacchaeus and the Samaritan woman and, and, and people who were, who were looked down on by society, who were shunned because of their position or their character. He went after Paul to show, as I prayed, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now the point is that the Lord is not after some, some, some distant generic relationship. He's not just broadly saying, well, I love man, and they'll do their best, and, and whatever. He created us for a personal relationship with him. And even though we totally corrupted that and rejected him and distanced ourselves from him because of our sin, he is still constantly pursuing us to be restored to him. And the key to this is that it's personal. My father and I were talking this past week when I was in North Carolina and we were, he was asking what I was preaching about this, this December. And he said something to me. It just caught me at the time. He said, don't forget the word you. God uses the word you. And I started to look at the text. The angels say to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, for unto what? You is born this day a Savior. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says to the Philippian jailer who was about to kill himself because of the earthquake and the potential of the prisoners getting loose, he says, no, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God is personal. God doesn't just throw out salvation and say, whatever. He says, you, Paul Rhodes, you, I died for you. I rose again for you. And if you trust in me, you will be saved. 
and then I will love you and adopt you and take care of you and provide for you and minister to you and strengthen you and give you power and make you like my son. That's what I will do for you. God is not distant. God is not removed. God is right there, and he proved it by Emmanuel coming. But what does that do? It means we have responsibility. We broke the original relationship. This concept of responsibility, listen now, this is so absent from our culture, right? It's so absent, the concept of of personal responsibility for actions. And the examples are countless. I'm not even going to start to list them. But we see it in politics. We see it in entertainment. We see it in sports. We see it in crime. We see it in every generation. Let's not just blame the millennials, all right? Let's not just say, well, those stinking millennials, they just don't take any responsibility. Listen, the boomers and the Xers and the wires and whatever Zers, I don't know who else is out there, guess where the millennials learned it? They watched us. They watched us not have a commitment to marriage. They not watched us not have integrity morally. They watched us not have integrity in terms of business. They watched us break relationships. They watched us not be faithful to the Lord and faithful to the church. They watched us. And the Lord has always held us personally responsible for our convictions and our actions. Listen to what he says. He asked Adam and Eve after they sinned, where are you? What is this you have done? Every one of the Ten Commandments essentially starts with you. You will have no other gods before me. You will not take the name of the Lord in vain. You will not commit adultery. You will not steal. You will not covet. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees who were so smug and self-righteous and wicked, he said, you are a brood of snakes. He let them know that it was personal. It was a rejection of him. And even Paul, when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, because Paul had been killing Christians, Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. In other words, the guilt's on you, Paul. Now get up and enter the city, and I'll show you what you have to do. You see, the point is that that salvation and a restored relationship with God is only possible through Jesus Christ. And that requires each of us to recognize and acknowledge and accept Him as God and as Savior. And then each of us has to repent of our sin and trust in Him alone. Now, a lot of people reject that. A lot of people say, that's not right, that's not for me. And some will even go so far as to say, well, if that was true then God's not really God because that makes him kind of weak and pathetic and inadequate because he's willing to condescend to come down here as a baby and to live as Jesus and to offer salvation to people who clearly aren't worth it and to kind of pursue us. Well, he must not be a very great God. But this is the awesomeness of Emmanuel. And this is the second point this morning. Jesus' presence and Jesus' offer is the unimaginable validation of God's love and mercy. See, what Jesus did by coming as God in flesh, and we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but but what he did is the ultimate proof, the ultimate validation of his love and his mercy. It doesn't in any way make God weak or pathetic because 
here's the one key. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He can be God, and he can have absolute authority over all things, and he can be holy and fully satisfied within himself because he's perfect, and he can do all of that without us. But for some reason, he loves us, and he wants us to love him and know his mercy, and that makes him incredibly powerful. The amazing thing about grace is that he doesn't need us at all, but he still pursues us to forgive us and restore us and secure us. How many know this morning that God's grace is so awesome and so overwhelming? His grace, let's give him a hand. Let's praise the Lord. Listen, he has offered each of us, not, not just broad mankind, he offers every person a personal relationship with the Savior and the Lord of all, where he's our heavenly father and we're his children. He could treat us like slaves. He'd be perfectly justified. He owes us nothing, but instead he adopts us and declares us his own and fills us with his spirit and calls us his friends. Oh, he's so good. And his grace is so adequate, we can't even describe it. That's why the Bible does it so beautifully. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. As many as receive him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what shall we say? If God be for us, who can be against us? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Christ. Think about the things that the Bible says about the grace of God. That God, because of his love and mercy, makes a personal approach to us. And, and, and that requires that it then becomes a personal decision. You can't see the grace of God. You can't see the offer of Christ. You can't see God intervening as Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, experiencing our lives, going to the cross with my sin and your sin, and rising again to defeat that sin. You can't look at that and say, well, I don't have to make a personal decision, because you do. A lack of decision is a decision. Turn over for a minute. Let's close out. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. The women have been studying Ephesians. Women, it's been good, hasn't it? Ephesians is a great, great book. We'll maybe do a series on that someday. But turn to Ephesians 2. Let's, let's see one more passage and draw our last point and ask the Lord to bless us. Let's see why this is so important that God has made a personal approach and a personal pursuit and then calls us to a personal decision. Here's why this is so wonderful. Verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you had a past life that was dead to sin, among whom we all, too, formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Oh, but verse 4, oh, I love verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. Can you imagine that? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, every believer should know these next two verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Read it with me. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Go to verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. This is a deep, deep passage that we would spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks trying to get all the truth out of it. And we would never get enough. But let me tell you something. There's one truth that runs through all of it as its foundation. And here's the truth. The Lord is willing to change our condition from death and depravity and despondency to forgiveness, freedom, and fellow citizenship in heaven. He's willing to take us from depravity and death and defeat and despondency to forgiven and freed and full of life and a fellow citizen in heaven. And that leads us to the third truth. Let me give you that. Christ's offer is exactly what every person needs more than anything else. Of all the things you desire in life, all the things you desire in the world, and that changes as you get older, right? When I was fifth, when I was eight, I wanted toys and a new bike. When I was 15, I wanted a car. Now that I'm 52, I want my dad to be healthy. Your desires change. Your, your whole approach changes. So what we need more than anything else is the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the relationship with Christ. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you don't believe that. You're skeptical about Jesus. So you, if you haven't turned from your sin, you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, why should you care? What do you need with Jesus? What do you need with his offer to, to forgive you and free you from sin? Or maybe you're spiritual. You've been in church most of your life. Maybe even at some point in your life you prayed a prayer to trust in Christ. But, but he isn't your life. You don't live in his transformation. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying take that assessment. So you say, what's the big deal? God doesn't really expect me. Come on, Paul. He doesn't really expect me to die to self and surrender fully to him, does he? He doesn't require me to, to, to reject the old life and be holy, right? Or maybe you, you are walking with the Lord, but there's little joy. And, and, and you're constantly discouraged, and you feel defeated, and you don't have spiritual strength. You don't have victory 24-7. And you say, come on, Paul, that's, that's not even possible. When, when the Apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content in all things, come on, that was just an idealistic idea. Why did Emmanuel come? Why is it so important that we know and trust him? You know, our humanity and the enemy tries to tell us that we can be self-sufficient and we can reject him 
either, either overtly or passively. But there is a constant spiritual battle going on. There is a constant tug of war for our soul. And it has undeniable implications. And if we're really honest, if we really stop and say, all right, got to assess spiritually, and, and we learn to stop listening to the enemy's lies, we will realize that our pain and our deep-seated need, personal, emotional, and especially spiritual, is screaming at us that we need the Lord. So many people, and I would say maybe somebody in this room, they don't feel right in their spirit. And it's not culture, and it's not situational, it's spiritual. And instead of rationalizing it away or looking for other answers, just see what Jesus provides. He is offering a living, active, secure, close relationship with the almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious God. And you may be skeptical, and you may say, well... And Paul, it's partly because of relationships. And, and I've just, I've been burned. Relationships have not gone well. And honestly, I have trouble trusting people. I was on the plane flying above the clouds yesterday. You get a different perspective when you're up high, right? All of a sudden, everything seems a little bit bigger than you. And the Lord put on my heart a couple categories of people that have been hurt by relationships. Maybe you're damaged. Somebody hurt you physically, somebody hurt you emotionally, you've never healed, you were wounded, and, and you still are. And it's hard to see, honestly, between you and the Lord, how you're ever going to feel healthy or whole again. You're damaged. Or maybe you're disillusioned. You've been taken advantage of. People, people didn't treat you right. You've been broken and burned. Somebody was selfish. Somebody didn't respect you the way you deserved to be respected. And now, because everybody's let you down, now you say, well, the, the Lord would let me down too. He's not worth trusting. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe, maybe you feel abandoned and left out and hurt, and, and the holidays aren't happy for you. They're kind of hopeless and depressing, and you'd like to believe the Lord cares. You really would, but, but, but you just don't feel like you have anybody around you. And, and it seems like a nice concept, but it can't be reality. Maybe you're just hungry. You, you just, you just, there isn't one thing or one person that you can isolate, but you just hunger for relationships. And this study's kind of piquing your interest, but you're not quite sure. Listen, culturally, relationships are a mess. The divorce rate is high. The country's fractured. Churches are broken. In fact, it's so bad, I saw an article last night, our relationships are so fragile that 75% of women say their smartphones are hurting their relationships, and yet they won't put them down. Spiritually, when you hear, when, when you hear damaged, disillusioned, lonely, hungry, when you hear those words, listen, spiritually now, do they describe you? God is personal. He cares about you for some reason I will never fathom. He cares about Paul Rhodes. He sees me in the vastness of the universe and looks at my life and says, if you were the only one, Christ would have died for you. If you were the only one, 
Christ would have risen again for you. If you were the only one, my spirit would indwell you. If you were the only one, I would answer your prayers. If you were the only one, I would minister to you because I love you. Now insert your name in that. God's response, God's solution, Holy Spirit help us. God's, God's answer to these needs is Emmanuel God with. He shows the value he has for your life in that he not only made you in his image, but he'd allow his son, listen, to be the substitute in your place for your sin. He shows his interest by reaching down and coming down and entering into history and experiencing our lives, he shows his closeness by being our Heavenly Father. Now you say, well, my father, my relationship with my dad was horrible, and it's not great, and he let me down. Many people have experienced that. I can't believe the number of people that have experienced that. Men, we need to be godly. We need to love our kids. But if your relationship with your dad was broken, you may say, well, I don't want to hear God's my heavenly father because I didn't do well with my own father. Listen, God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never fail you. He loves you more than you can imagine. Don't let the devil tell you that all fathers are worthless, including the heavenly father. God shows his care by healing and helping, by coming near to the brokenhearted by being our strength and our shield, by providing more than we can ask or think. He proves his empathy and that he was in all points tempted like we are, yet he shows us without sin. He's our security and our defense against spiritual attack. He encourages us by giving us the church to build us up and strengthen us and challenge us. God is personal. I'm done. It, it, it's obvious that the Lord desires to be in relationship with us. So let's evaluate and ask a couple questions as we finish. Let me, let me ask what your relationship is. Number one, is it non-existent? Is your relationship with God non-existent? There's, there's nothing there. Jesus isn't your savior. You don't care. There's nothing. You, you don't have an interest you just, you don't know why you're here today. Somebody brought you, whatever. But, but you don't have a relationship with God. Listen, I, I, if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. God loves you. Christ died for you. And he wants you to have a life that's abundant. Please hear me say that. I don't care if you ignore the other 35 minutes, but hear that one sentence. You can be free from the control of sin. You can be full of joy. You can have hope. Why? Because God is pursuing you. And if you want to know what that means and you want to trust Christ and God's breaking you this morning. And we prayed earlier as a prayer band. Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, break them this morning. Help them to know the love of Christ. I will spend as much time with you need talking to you afterwards. We'll have other people come and pray for you and encourage you because our lives have been changed by it. So is your relationship with God non-existent? Or then the Lord really gave me this thought in the plane last night. Do you have a social media relationship with the Lord? Is it, is it like, like a spiritual Facebook? You follow the Lord. You remember that study we did last month? The difference between a follower and a disciple? You, you, you follow the Lord, 
But other than checking in a couple times a week for some updates and communicating once in a while, that's the extent of it. It's surface, it's shallow, and it hasn't changed your life. It is time. Listen, that's you, and I suspect maybe there are people in this room that, that that's true of. It's time to end the part-time, passive, unaltered spirituality and give yourself fully to him. We've talked about it hundreds of times. Time to stop listening. Time to stop saying that's a nice concept. I'll get to it later in life. It's time to do it right now. Stop, stop being Facebook friends with God. Stop, stop checking the Twitter feed once in a while and Instagram. God, oh, look what God did this week, but Tuesday it doesn't matter. No, that's not how it works. Christ died for you to have a personal relationship with you so you can know him and love him and serve him. So get on it. Or option three. Do you have a living, active, close, loving, secure relationship with Christ? You're one of the flock, and you know his voice, and he knows you. And he's got you, and you're secure in him, and he's forgiven you, and you're free, and he's provided a restored relationship, and you wake up in the morning saying, praise you, God, for what you've done, and you go to bed at night knowing if you breathe your last breath, you'll be standing in eternity with him, and he will say, well done. Which is it? It's one of the three. No relationship, Facebook relationship, a living relationship. He came as a manual to free us and save us. Aren't you glad God pursues us? Let's thank him and praise him.